Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. <laughs> I, uh, I think that each and every one of us this morning can relate to this video in some form or another because the reality is none of us have it all together. In fact, I would bet that at some point in our lives, we have played this role of the Sunday morning Christian where we come to church looking like we have it all together and life's all figured out, when in reality, we're just happy we made it to church before service was already over and that all of our kids are actually still present as well. But what I really enjoy about this video is the stereotypical image that the world has of what we as Christians look like how we interact with one another, how we speak to one another, how we engage with one another, this very interesting dynamic of really what they think a Sunday morning Christian actually looks like. And so this morning, as we continue in our series called Bad Religion, I get to talk to you about bad religion assumes that everybody knows what it means to be a Christian. You know, in fact, the Christian church is one of the largest religions that exist inside of the world right now. And the Christian church boasted about 2.4 billion members worldwide in a survey that was taken in 2012. And that's a huge leap from the measly 600 million it had just a century earlier. And in fact, scholars and educators, they believe that by the year 2050, the Christian church will have about 3 billion followers worldwide. That's three with nine zeros at the end of it. And what this really means is that by 2050, a third of the world's population will identify themselves by using one word, Christian. But what does that word mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? What are Christians? This question was posed to a very small sample size a couple of years ago, and they were asked, what does it mean to be a Christian or who are Christians? And they got some really interesting responses that were all over the board. Responses such as people who go to church every Sunday to people who always want my money. They get responses of people who try to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ to people who are ignorant and who are haters and judgmental. People who try to live a good life while they have the ability to do so on earth versus people who really are just haters who condemn everyone to hell. You get a wide range of what it means to be a Christian because this word Christian actually has so many different layers to it that it's hard for the world to pick one working definition of what it actually means to be a Christian. And to make matters worse, there are so many people out there who see this label and see this title and just apply it to their lives without really knowing what this word Christian means, the true depth that exists behind it. And then they go and live a lifestyle that's anything but Christian, and the world sees it and says, wait a second, who are the real Christians and who are these fake Christians? We can't tell the difference between the two because everybody just calls themselves the exact same thing. You know, if you're like me, Christianity is so much more than just a label. It's so much more than just a word. It's a part of who I am. It's a core part of my identity. Just as much as I am a human, just as much as I am a man, just as much as I am a husband, just as much as I'm about to be a father, I'm a Christian. It's part of who I am. But how often do we actually stop to ask ourselves the question, what does it really mean to be a Christian? If we're going to be calling ourselves this title, do we really know what it means, what it stands for? And why there are so many people in the world from history to present who label themselves as Christian. People like Mother Teresa to Barack Obama, Tim Tebow to Martin Luther King, Johnny Cash to Queen Victoria, Mr. Rogers to Whitney Houston, Sir Isaac Newton to Alice Cooper, Charles Dickens to Justin Bieber, to me, to you, to the founder of Wendy's, this guy named Dave. 
why we all call ourselves Christians, and yet every single one of us lives such a different lifestyle. How can that be? How can there be so many different working theories of what it means? And we struggle with this question, and no wonder why the world has a hard time. And they just give this blanket statement, well, this must be what Christians look like, because it's just the commonality between all of these people, or what is perceived in their lives. And we as Christians even struggle with this because we want to know what it means to be a Christian. And so where do we go? We go to our Bibles to find out exactly what scripture has to say about being a Christian. But the problem is, is that this word is only used three times in scripture. The word Christian is only used three times in scripture and each time it's used, it doesn't really define or give us much insight into this word or its meaning. And so if we can't use our Bibles to find out what the word Christian means, where do we go from there? Well, most people go to Google or they go to Alexa or they go to Siri and they say, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or if you're old school like me and how I was raised, you go to the dictionary. Merriam-Webster actually defines a Christian as someone who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that's great. I think some of us would recognize this. But if I were to ask the same question to people as they were leaving today, what does it mean to be a Christian? I bet you I would get very different answers from this. Maybe some of you would say it's about having a relationship with God. Some of you would say maybe it's following God. Some maybe would say it's trying to live like Jesus lived. Maybe it's about being saved. Maybe it's about being redeemed. You see, this is the problem. Christians can't even agree on what the word Christian means because there's so much depth that exists to it. And it's no wonder why the world has a hard time deciphering what it really means to be a Christian and what this whole Christian thing is all about. So I think it's our due diligence that we need to be prepared, that we need to break the cycle of bad religion to be able to know what it really means to be a Christian so we can help the world understand what real Christianity looks like. And in order to do that, we need to know what being a Christian actually means in our own lives and for our own benefit as well. And to do that, we have to take a look and take it back at the root of this word Christian. If you look at the Greek root of this word that we use in English, Christian, the word is Christianus, which it means a follower of Christ. And I think most of us in this room would agree that, yes, that is the working definition that we know to be true about Christians. We are followers of Christ. But I don't think that's good enough. I think we need to go a step further. So if we take it back even further to look at the Latin root of this word, we see a different perspective. The Latin root of this word is Christianus, which sounds very similar to the Greek, but it's different. The suffix ianus, it means the relationship of possession or origin. So what this means is that it's not just about being a follower of Christ. It means you belong to Christ. It means you are God's possession. So when you call yourself a Christian, you are publicly declaring to the world, I belong to Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And we actually see this play itself out in scripture. In the book of Acts chapter 11, the very first time this word is mentioned, we see this scene between Saul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And as you're opening there, I'm going to set the stage a little bit for us. Jesus has just ascended. He's gone up into heaven. And after he leaves, this major persecution breaks out in the land. And this persecution is so bad, this group of people called the followers of the way, they have to escape. And so they make this long trek from Jerusalem all the way up to Antioch. It's like a 148-hour walk for them to get all the way up to Antioch. 
which is not a very Christian place. It's got its roots in Judaism. It's a very Greek-speaking, Roman-minded kind of area. And when they finally get into Antioch, they start telling the people that they meet, these new people, about everything that they had seen and experienced back in Jerusalem. They say, hey, we actually saw this guy named Jesus. He did these miracles. He just performed miraculous sights and wonders, and he healed people, and he even died and arose again. And these Greek-speaking Roman-minded people in Antioch, they were taken aback by this, saying, wow, this is pretty cool. There's something new. There's something fresh. There's something exciting about this, and we want to know more. And so they embrace this fad, this kind of knock-off Judaic religion, as it would be. They say, we want to know more. Teach us more. Tell us more. And people just started gathering left and right and left and right. So much so that they had to start setting up multiple locations and times and places for people to meet that these churches started to form around Antioch. Well, word goes back to Jerusalem where these guys named Peter and John and Matthew are, that this church is just exploding. And there's hundreds of people who are seeking to know God more. And they say, what the heck is going on? What is happening over in Antioch? Why is this working so well? We need to find out so we can replicate it. So we can go to other cities and do the same thing. So they enlist the help of a man by the name of Barnabas. And they say, Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch and see if the rumors are true. Tell us what's really going on and if the church is really exploding as everybody says that it is. So Barnabas makes the long trek by himself. And once he gets to Antioch, he realizes everything is true. The crowd is just exploding. There's more and more people by the hundreds coming to know who Jesus is. And he's overwhelmed. He's taken aback. He says, oh my gosh, this is amazing what's happening here. But this is more than I can handle for myself. I need to get somebody else involved to help me understand what's really going on here. To decipher how this is working so well and how we can replicate it. So he says, I need someone who is super smart, who knows culture, who knows society, who knows the law, who knows about everything there is to know about these followers of the way. And only one person comes to his mind, a man by the name of Saul, who we know as Paul. And so this is where Acts chapter 11 picks up for us. If you join me in reading this in verse 25, it says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. In this Greek-speaking culture, this is crazy to think about. They come and they just want to know more and they're embracing Christianity that Saul and Barnabas have to spend a year working with them, teaching them, engaging in life with them. And then something remarkable happens. They figure something out. Look at how the rest of this verse ends. It says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the first time we see this word ever in scripture. But you notice how it's phrased here? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Not they called themselves Christians. They were called Christians. It was a label that was placed on them by an outside group. That these people in Antioch, these Roman Greek citizens would see this group of followers of the way and even their own people embracing the message of Jesus Christ and getting to know more, that they stand back and they say, whoa, those people, they're Christianists. But you see, we miss that. There's actually so much power in that one statement that we don't understand because we don't know Greek culture, Greek language, and Greek society. 
check this out. This is so cool. This completely changed my whole philosophy on everything and my understanding when I read about it. In ancient Greek society and culture, there was a word that everybody was familiar with. And it was this word Augustinius, which it means of or belonging to an emperor. In this culture during this time, you either were property of the emperor or you were killed. There was no other option. It's you belong to the emperor. You were his property. So you had to pay into it. You had to follow the laws and the, the commands. Everything was built upon this. And this word was so prevalent that people actually incorporated it into their own names. Like I would be Matt Augustanius Dietz, meaning Matt who belongs to the emperor Dietz. It was so prevalent inside this land that everybody knew this language. It was very common for them. And so in the middle of this Greek-speaking, Roman-minded community, Paul and Sar or, uh, Saul and Barnabas, they come and they see this group of people calling this other group of people Christianus, which was huge. They're saying, these guys are different. They belong to Jesus. They're his possession. They belong to God. Something is weird here. And what we don't understand is that this was an incredibly culturally subversive statement. It was anti-establishment. It was against the norm. It was this radical claim. I don't belong to an emperor. I don't belong to a Caesar. I don't belong to a king. I belong to a new master. I belong to a greater Lord. I belong to Jesus Christ. And because of this, society didn't know what to do because all they ever knew was you were either for the emperor or you died. So to be included in this group, that was something different. That was a radical claim that went against everything everybody knew. People shied away from it. And this label Christians started to get thrown at them. Oh, these are Christians because they're not Augustanians. They're Christianists. And so this word Christian literally became a derogatory term. It became an insult to label this group of people saying, oh, those Christians because we don't want anything to do with that. Like geek or redneck. Actually, the word would be a lot worse. But if I said it out loud, most of you would get offended and probably leave today. That's how radical this word was. That's how different of a statement this was, that people were claiming those people, they belong to Jesus Christ and to no one else. Is this the same idea or definition that we have of this word Christian today? Is this what the world believes to be true about Christians? I don't think so. And that's why it takes us back to our main topic of this idea that bad religion assumes everybody knows what it means to be a Christian. See, the world thinks just like this video this morning that Christians are just people who come to church dressed in their Sunday best and they high five each other and hug each other and have terrible acting children and they bring their Bibles to church and we just learn about Jesus and then we leave all happy. But you see, this is bad religion because Christianity, being a Christian is so much more than that. It's so much more than just this stereotype the world has thrown at us. It's not just about following Jesus. It's about obeying his commandments. It's about obeying his laws, following his teachings, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we know with confidence in our hearts that because we belong to Jesus, because we are his possession, he only wants to take care of us. He only wants what's best for us. He only wants us to live a good life because we are his, we belong to him and he's gonna continue to grow us and nurture us and mold us and mend us and never leave us because he loves us. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. 
how do we do that? How do our lives reflect this working definition of what it means to be a Christian? How does that play out? Well, I think there's a couple things that we can look at in Scripture that help us understand what it really means to be a Christian. And the first one comes from this book called John. In chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus is talking to his disciples who were called Christians at this time. And he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another as I have loved you. See, I think the first distinguishing characteristic of what it means to be a Christian is that a Christian is someone who loves people like Jesus loved people. Simply, a Christian is someone who loves people like Jesus loved people. But how did Jesus love people? And how can we exhibit that same kind of love towards people? You see, for Jesus, it was more than just a word. Jesus knew that this word love is something that people throw around all the time. I love sports. I love my car. I love my vacation home. I love my family. I love my friends. But it's just a word. He took it a step further and he put it into action. In fact, Jesus's love was defined by his actions. And if you spend any time in scripture, you'll realize that everywhere that Jesus went, people wanted to be near him. People wanted to hang out with him, not because they loved him, but because he loved them. He loved them without exception. He loved them without judging. He loved them without condemnation. He says, I don't care who you are, what background you've come from. I'm going to show you I love you. I'm going to show you worth. I'm going to show you value. I'm going to show you meaning. I'm going to show you purpose and dignity because every single person is deserving of our love. And that's what he did. And so people flocked around him and people wanted to hang out with Jesus. And all kinds of people hung out with Jesus. You had fishermen, tax collectors, you had thieves, you had house servants, beggars, children, parents. You even had the disabled, the diseased. You had the harlots and the prostitutes. Everybody was with Jesus. And not only did he hang out with them, he did things with them. He prayed with them. He taught them. He performed miracles in front of them. He healed them. He fed them. And then he takes it a step further and he says, I really want you to understand how much I love you. And I'm going to go and die for you so you can live, so you can be set free. See, Jesus gave us the perfect example of what it means to truly love people. But how can we love like Jesus loved? I mean, odds are we're never going to feed 5,000 or heal the broken or perform miracles. But what we can do and what we should do is love people like Jesus loved them. To love them without holding back, regardless of who they are, to realize that every single person is deserving of our love. Because that's what Jesus showed us, a love that knows no bounds, a love that's defined in 1 Corinthians. It says love is peaceful, it's patient, it's kind, it's good-natured, it's gentle, it's faithful, it's self-controlled. It's a love that doesn't concern itself with its own wants and needs, but always about putting others before yourself. That's the kind of love that Jesus left for us to follow after. That's the kind of love that we're going to be identified as as Christians in this world. And Jesus even says this in the next part of this verse, in verse 35, he says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus laid it out. He says, you want the world to know you're a Christian? This is how you do it. You love each other because the rest of the world's not gonna do that. And if you wanna truly be different and claim that you belong to Jesus Christ, you need to start loving people because that's how they're gonna know. 
And so you want to know if you have the Christian title in your life? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see a love that's selfless, willing to serve, ready to sacrifice? Or a love that holds on to anger and bitterness and jealousy and rage? Or no love at all? You see, the mark of a true Christian is someone who has a true, sacrificial, selfless, and serving type of love, regardless of who that person is in their life. And that's hard but it's what we're called to do as Christians. The next part we see comes a little bit earlier in scripture from the book of Matthew chapter four, the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And it says this, as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him continues to say, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. This is such an incredible passage. I think the next thing that we can glean from this about being a Christian is that a Christian is someone who's called to follow, and we should respond. Christians are called to follow and we should respond. And now I'm going to pause here real quick to say this word called, it is a very churchy word. It is a very big word. It's a very Christian-esque word, but I want to break it down real quick because it's not that scary as we actually believe it is. One of the most amazing things that I see in scripture is the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, how he interacts with people, how he invites them to take part of his life and his plan for the world. And this amazing story we see here in the book of Matthew, these guys are just out fishing in their boat, doing their normal daily lives, their daily routines, minding their own business, when all of a sudden this man comes up on the shore and calls out to them and says, hey, I want you to come and follow after me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was driving in my car, stopped at the off-ramp, and I rolled my window down, someone's like, hey, come follow me, odds are I wouldn't go, right? That's kind of sketchy. But when they see this, they realize that something is different about this man. Odds are they don't know who he is. They maybe have heard rumors. Maybe that's Jesus. I don't know. It's this little figure way off on the shore over there. Something's different here. I'm not quite sure if we should follow this, but when they see Jesus call out to them, something clicks for them. Something is different to where they say, man, I've got to go. They don't waste time. They don't dilly-dally. They don't talk back and forth. They don't converse amongst themselves. They don't make a pros and cons list. They don't go home and sleep on it or pray about it. What does scripture say? Both times, they immediately respond to the call of God. Immediately respond. They leave behind their livelihood. I mean, they make a living fishing for their whole family. They leave behind their livelihood. They leave behind their possessions, the things they've worked hard for, like their boats, their livelihood that they work on. And they leave behind their family. Poor father is still sitting in the boat in the middle of the lake, right? They're like, bye dad, going for Jesus. It's this crazy story that when they hear Jesus call out to them, they say, man, something is different. Something is powerful about this. That Jesus, he's not just calling out to me. He's inviting me to join him. That he knows where I'm at and he knows that there's something greater that I could be doing. And you see, folks, that's true of us as well. This whole idea behind God God calling us is simply God inviting us to join him where he's at, to join him, to give him a chance to show us the path and the plan that he has set before us. He says, look, I know where you're at in life. I know your accomplishments. I know what you've achieved. I know your goals. But let me tell you this. 
I have something better in store. Those are great, but there's something better. And if you give me a chance and follow after me, I'll show you. Because you know what? I want to love on you. I want to give to you. I want you to experience the most out of life because you're my possession. Because you belong to me and I want to take care of you. I only want to see what's best for you. And I want to see you be happy and succeed in this life. And I want to show you how to do it by following the path that I have set before you. See, despite Jesus hanging out with the prostitutes and the harlots and the thieves and the beggars and the slaves, he never once compromised his values. He never slept around. He never stole. He never cheated. He never lied to anybody. No, every single time he was faithful. He was a role model. Not only that, he wanted to help us. He says, I'm going to teach you how to have relationships with one another. I'm going to teach you how to communicate with one another. I'm going to teach you how to take care of one another. I'm going to teach you how to pray for one another. I'm going to teach you how to feed one another. I'm going to teach you how to get closer to God in the midst of this all. You see, Jesus was all about setting an example for us to follow where we take care of each other, where we love on one another. That's what the calling is in our life, not to some scary thing, but rather it's simply to be a little bit more like Jesus in our daily lives to love a little bit more like Jesus in our daily lives, in a world that doesn't want to show love. And yeah, that's difficult. Yeah, that's hard, but that's the type of love that Jesus has called us to. That's the type of calling that Jesus is calling us to. He says, simply, I'm just asking that you follow. And it's our duty as Christians to respond to that invitation and say, God, I'm all in because I know that you only want what's best for me. And I want to grab a hold of that because I want to see my life changed for the better. The last one that I want to bring up comes a little bit later in scripture in Matthew chapter 28, something called the Great Commission. It says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, I think when we look at this, there's something incredible that we can pull out of it. And it's this, that Christians simply should be teaching others the good news of Jesus. We should be teaching others the good news of Jesus. I believe strongly that there is this misconception that exists out there in the world that it's our job as Christians just to get people here to this building and then our job is done because now it's the pastor's job to save their souls. It's the pastor's job, but you know what? That's bad religion too. Because we see in scripture that Jesus calls this the co-mission. Believe it or not, you are the church. I am the church. This building is not the church. We all are the church, and it's all of our mission to go and to save souls. It's a partnership between every single one of us, and we have to grab a hold of this, and we should be showing other people the love that Jesus has shown us. And this isn't in an arrogant or a demanding way. It's actually so much easier than that. Jesus says simply, I want you to go and share with other people what you've experienced the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that I have shown you. Tell them your story of how your life was changed and how now you've been set free because that's what they need to know. That's what we want them to grab a hold of. You see, it's our bad religion assumption to assume that everybody knows heaven and hell, that everybody knows who Jesus is. We can't look at people and say, ah, oh, yeah, they probably know Jesus, so I'm gonna let that go. They'll have their own moment with God. No, it's all of our responsibility because we all are the church to engage with these people, 
to interact with these people, to talk with these people, and to teach them in a loving manner just simply what God has done in our lives and how we have been changed for the better and just start showing them the love that God has shown us. And I know that this can be scary. I know this can be daunting, but let me tell you this. The eternal reward that awaits them in heaven far outweighs the temporary awkwardness that you experience on this earth. It's so true. And that's what God wants for us. He wants to take us to that place. You know, we are finishing up this fall session of life groups called Rooted right now. And about two weeks ago, week seven, the question was posed to us, who is your neighbor? And I love this question because it was designed to get us out of our comfort zones, to get us out of the normalcy of our lives, to start asking how well do we really know the people we surround ourselves with every single day in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, even in our family gatherings? Do we really know our neighbors? And even more, do our neighbors really know us? And the whole point of this is because this is our mission field. This is who God has called us to. These social circles are the people that we're supposed to be sharing the good news of Jesus with every single day, that we're supposed to be loving on, that we're supposed to be interacting with. And yeah, it's super awkward, but it's what we've been called to do. And as Christians, we need to know that we have to respond to this in a loving manner, not in a forceful manner, but to maybe start living a life that better reflects Jesus. To get past the superficial hellos and the head nods and the waves of our neighbors, but to truly move to a place where when they look at us, they can see that something's different. They can see that there's something better, something they want to grab a hold of or even start to ask questions about. Even the tiniest door open is a win. And that's what we're called to do, to step into this. You see, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've got some big shoes to fill. It's shoes that say you need to be loving. You need to respond to the call, the invitation that God has given you to be like him in a world that's not. And on top of all that, you need to be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with every person you come in contact with because you can't assume that they know and that they're saved. But it all comes back to love. And so I challenge you, as you go from this place today, just to think about how can I make a difference, even the smallest difference this week, in my neighborhoods, my communities, my homes, with my family? Where can I make a difference to where I can be a little bit more like Jesus and a, less, a little bit less like myself? Where I can show a little bit more of Jesus and remove a little bit of the pain and the sting of this world. Maybe to show love to someone who needs it to show compassion to someone who's asking for help, to show favor to someone who's asking for your forgiveness, to show grace and mercy to someone who's wronged you, to show patience to someone who has you at your end, to show Jesus to someone who needs to know him. See, God has called us all to live this life of a Christian. But if we're gonna call ourselves Christians, we need to go forward and make this public declaration, I belong to Jesus Christ. I don't belong to this world. I don't follow the ways of this world. I follow a new master, a new king, because I am his and he is mine. And he wants to take care of me. He wants to love on me. And we want that same thing for other people as well. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. And that's the type of Christian the world desperately needs to see and needs to experience. God is calling you to step up and be a Christian today. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready to publicly declare who you belong to? Would you join me in prayer? Father, God, we just so humbly come before you today. 
Father, knowing that this life is not our own. God, knowing that you have called us to something so far greater than we ever possibly could imagine, that we ever possibly could hope for, Father, and that it's an invitation, Father, that you're going to walk alongside of us every step of the way. And you're going to show us love when we fail, when we stumble. But God, I pray that you just start working in our hearts as we leave this place today. God, maybe some of that hardness of our hearts, the, the anger or the frustration would be broken down. Father, that we would truly start to be your people, to be the Christians you have called us to be, Father, to be the type of people who can boldly go around this world saying, I belong to you. God, you are mine and we are yours. And I pray that you just help us be more like you in this world, not just a follower of Jesus, Father. Someone who's following your commands, your, your commandments, your laws, everything, Father, your teachings, and allowing us to truly love like you loved. Father, this world needs so much love, and I pray that it starts right here in this room today. God, that we would be emboldened as we leave to love like you. We love you, Father. I pray this in your name.